I'm excited about getting back in the book of Romans. I know for some of you, you think we've been in the book of Romans since Jesus was a child. That's not true. It's only been a few months, uh, and we are coming up to the end. In fact, today, we're going to look at chapter 15, which Paul begins to kind of sign off. He begins to kind of put together his final statements and begins to wind down, making sure that the churches in Rome are being clearly told what God is inspiring him to write to them. Again, this is a letter that he's written to the churches in Rome. It's considered to be a circular letter. He wrote it to not a church in Rome, like many of his letters were to a church, but this is to the churches of Rome. And so he expected it to be handed around. And today we're going to look at chapter, at the beginning of chapter 15. And I titled this sermon, Singing in the Choir, because Paul uses a word picture that relates to us as a church. And, you know, I, of course, love all these music, uh, being a musical guy, I uh, love all these music uh, connections. But when you talk about a choir, uh, you're talking about a whole group of me- a melody and a bunch of harmonies that sound great together. And we'll talk more about that when we get to that part of the passage. Uh, but this is really a continuation of chapter 14, is what 15 is. And remember, it was generations before uh, people added uh, the numbering system, the chapters and the verses and all that kind of thing. Paul's just writing a letter like we did w- w- or would do. There's no numbers or anything like that. And so really 15 is continuing the idea about not judging one another, not causing each other to stumble, all of that kind of thing. But there is a little bit of a distinction, and that's why that the uh, people that did the numbering system moved it to chapter 15. Uh, but we'll look at that here in just a minute. But let's read through uh, chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 13. And then we'll come back and take it apart, as we always do, a little piece by piece to better understand it. Let's read chapter 15. It says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And so you can already see that hope is a big uh, factor in this passage, and we'll talk about that more as we go through it. But I want us to see that the first principle we see in this passage is to please others and not ourselves. Please others and not ourselves. Let's go back and read verses one through three again and pay careful attention to what it says. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. 
For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, wait a minute. It's not for us to please others? Doesn't that conflict with other passages in the New Testament that basically say don't be concerned about what others think, only be concerned about what God thinks? Should we not care about what other people think, or should we? How do we... How do we look at this? How do we find the conclusion? Well, look at Acts chapter 5, verse 29. It says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So they didn't care much about what other people thought, or it didn't seem so. Okay? First, in this passage, I want us to see that it talks about the strong having an obligation to the weak. Now listen, this is, is <laughs> nat- it's natural and it's common for the strong to destroy the weak. That is just the way of the world. I mean, look at nature. It's the survival of the fittest. If you want to go on YouTube this afternoon and uh, watch a bunch of uh, cheetahs chasing gazelle and taking them down, you could watch those all afternoon probably. Although, I'm not sure about cheetahs and gazelles if they go together. But anyway, you can find these animals that chase others down and kill them. You know what? Humans aren't very different. In a lot of places and a lot of ways, it's kind of worldly and natural for the strong to destroy the weak. But folks, the New Testament here teaches the strongest, fittest survive and then minister to the weak. We, if we are the strong, we bear their burdens. We care for the widows, the orphans, the sick, the hungry. That's why our church is involved in helping ministries like Missouri Baptist Children's Home. Those are orphans. They're kids that have been either taken away out of abusive situations or they're kids with no parents or unfit parents. We work with Hillcrest Transitional Housing. We actually sponsor one of their uh, apartments. And so every time somebody moves out uh, and gets ready to come into the program, we will restock that whole apartment with either furniture or whatever, uh, food stuff and all that kind of thing. We want to minister to the poor and the hungry. When this verse talks about uh, uh, the, the strong upholding the weak, we need to make sure that in Christianity, it's the opposite of what the world sees. The world says the strong survive and the strong destroy the weak. But in Christianity, as with many things, the world has turned things upside down. And Jesus turns them right side up. And so the reality is, the stronger we are, the more we should care for the weak. In fact, I would say that's even a, a characteristic of our strength. When this verse talks about pleasing our neighbor, which, by the way, switches, if you remember in chapter 14, and this is one of the reasons why they started the numbering in chapter 15 today, or, or back then, is that in chapter 14, all of the discussion about uh, uh, not offending your brother it was all about the brother. Now it says your neighbor. Why is there a difference? Because the brothers are those inside the church. There are those who have given their life to Christ. We need to be careful that we don't offend one another. We need to be careful that the strong don't offend the weak and the weak don't look down on the, on the strong. But now he's saying, he's using this word neighbor, which includes not only those inside the church, but those outside the church. When he says uh, to please our neighbor, he doesn't mean to be motivated by the wishes and whims of every other human being to give them what they want. He's not saying that at all. It doesn't mean to please others by ignoring God's word or the leading of the Holy Spirit. 
He's not saying that the most important thing is to please everyone else. But he tells us in the passage how we should please others. What does he mean by that? When he says we should be pleasing others, even outside the church, how do we do that? Well, this passage actually gives us three ways to do it. Let's look at them. The first way, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. In other words, it's in ways that are for their good. In ways that are for their good. This may not always be pleasing in the moment, but for the long term, it is. Now listen, for those of us who have children, we understand that many, many, many times we don't do things in the moment to please them. We do things that are long-term for their benefit. In fact, many of the things we do long-term for their benefit, they think stink right now, right? So this isn't about making everybody happy about stuff. This is about doing things for people's good. In fact, what's the greatest way since Paul has changed the discussion from our brothers to our neighbors, what's the greatest way that we can do something for their good? It's to share the gospel with them. It's to share Jesus with them. It's to go and tell them, listen, all of us are sinners. None of us can do anything to take away our own sin. But Jesus died on the cross to bear our sins, to pay for our sins. And by putting our faith and trust in him and him alone, our sins can be forgiven and we can be made right with God. And so can you. Now listen, your neighbor might not like hearing that. In that moment, they may not like hearing it. But I'll tell you something. The person that shared the gospel with me, I wish I could find him. I wish I could tell him how thankful I am that he shared something with me. Paul has explained the gospel in great detail throughout the book of Romans. We talked about him painting this picture of how far from God we are, how, how desperately wicked we are, and how good and perfect God is, and how the gospel bridges this gap. The bottom line is, we need to please others in ways that are for their benefit, for their good. The second way, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. The next way is in ways that build them up. Ways that encourage them, help them to grow, disciple them, move them closer to Jesus. We should be helping our neighbors in this way. We should be, in a sense, pleasing them Again, not to make them just happy about everything, but ways that encourage them, help them grow, disciple them. If you have a neighbor who's uh, maybe going through cancer and you mow their lawn or do some errands for them or take them some dinners, that's going to minister to them in an incredible way. It's going to build them up. It's going to encourage them. We need to do those things. Sometimes that also may mean letting them suffer some of the consequences of their own choices, but teaching them and growing them in the end, helping them understand what God is doing, building them up, helping them grow. The third way, in that same passage, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. 
We can build up others in ways that exhibit Christ's example. Ways that exhibit Christ's example. This quote that Paul quotes is from Psalm 69.9. It's a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. It was saying he took the burdens. He He was going to take on the burdens that were God's on himself. Folks, we need to take on the burdens of those around us. If we are going to be like Christ to them, we need to take on their burdens. Now listen, all of us have burdens in life. Sometimes they're heavy, sometimes not so much, if we're blessed. But one of the things about those burdens is when we share those with somebody, that burden gets divided. I still have to bear half of it, but you bear half of it for me. And so when we share burdens, you might have a neighbor who's just a terrible complainer. And you think, man, I I hate talking to them because they just complain all the time. Well, maybe there's a reason they complain. Maybe they need to complain. I mean, maybe they just have a lot to complain about, for real. And every time they share with you, you help lighten their burden. You are, in essence, being Christ to them. Folks, we need uh, to please others and not ourselves, but not just to make them happy or make them think we're wonderful. It's not that. It's about being Jesus to them. Look, the more time I spend with Jesus, the more I like him. And I think we should be that way to our neighbors. The more time they spend with us, the more they should like us, not for our benefit, but because we are reflecting Christ to them. The second principle that Paul talks about as he begins to wrap up his letter is this one. He said, God's word offers hope. Look in verse four. It says, for for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, this is probably one of the most practical verses in the New Testament, I think. What builds our hope? It's the instruction of God's word and endurance. Now, think about that for a minute. Think about that for a minute. If we're going to learn to rebuild an engine... Uh, let's say that we're going to do a class and we're going to learn to be, rebuild an engine and we're going to take it completely apart and put it completely back together, which I have no idea how to do any of that. Would it be better to read a book from cover to cover on how to do that? Or would it be better to just watch somebody do it and experience it? It's a trick question. The answer is both. The answer is both. Look, book, book instruction is very valuable. Folks, formal education can be very informative. It can be very beneficial and valuable. It explains why and how to do things. But life experience is also very valuable. It's practice that makes perfect, not reading that makes perfect. The more times you do something successful, the better you are at it. As a musician, I know for a fact that the more I practice, the better I will get. And the less I practice, the worse I get but neither is sufficient by itself. Hope is built the same way. God's word is an excellent source for knowing why things happen in life, what God is up to, what he's doing, how to get through life's difficulties with God's help. Listen, God's word is an immeasurable treasure for how to get through this life if we would just read it. But life experience is also very valuable. We experience God's faithfulness We experience how he works things out for the good of those who love him, as he's already said in the book of Romans. 
If you are lacking hope today, read God's word and look at his faithfulness in your life. Learn to recognize it and even anticipate it. That will build your hope. Listen, I, I, I don't feel hopeless in any area of my life right now. Now, I have before. But here I am standing without any hopelessness. So apparently, God has gotten me through every other hopeless situation that I have ever had to endure, right? Because here I stand. There you stand. Whatever situation you've been through, God has been faithful to get you through no matter whether or not you had hope. So what we should do, folks, is, is file those things away. File those things away. Because the next time I am faced with something hopeless, I'm going to go, well, I don't know what God's doing, but the 842 times before I've been hopeless in life, somehow he got me through them. I guess this is just 843, right? I mean, you begin to experience that enough and you just go, listen, I can trust him, I have hope, because God is faithful and he has been faithful to me. But that's not an excuse not to read God's word either because it has great power in our lives. And so you see that to, to build hope in your life, if you struggle with hope for your future and your eternity, read God's word, look at his faithfulness and how he has blessed your life and together that will build hope in you. The third thing we see here is he says, worship Christ in harmony with one another. And this is where he brings in the musical terms. And he basically says, as a church, sing as a big choir. Look at verses five and six. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I am a musician. I studied music in college. been a musician pretty much my whole life. And so I want to give you a little uh, music lesson here. Harmonies are not possible with one voice. Think about it. It takes a melody and then a harmony for the harmony to exist. Without the melody, or if you take away the melody, the harmony becomes the only voice and is therefore the new melody. So what he's saying here is that God wants us to worship together using different voices, not just singing, but worship him, serve him, be a church together with all different voices. In other words... He's specifically talking in this passage about our spiritual strength. Remember he started chapter 15? He said, let the strong endure and help the weak. He's saying, listen, it doesn't matter what your spiritual strength or maturity is. You have different personalities, different giftedness. You're all going to sing slightly a little different song in a sense. But when you come together in spiritual unity... And God is saying, if we will worship together, row the same direction, uh, using all these different voices, we will sound like one voice being in spiritual unity with one another, even in the midst of our diversity. It's another way that Paul's just saying simply, guys, you're all different. You're all different. And you're going to express things differently. You're going to be differently you're going to worship differently, all those different things. But there are some common things that we should come together on. There are some common things that we can, with one voice, row in one direction and be one choir. If you remember in chapter 14, Paul talked about essentials and non-essentials. 
being in agreement on the hills to die on, but having differences of opinions on the secondary issues of life and, and even doctrine. For instance, here are some examples. An essential is that Jesus is going to return. Folks, you, if you're a Christian, you should just know that Jesus is coming back. I mean, we should all agree on that. How and when that will happen, that's a non-essential. We can disagree on that. Because frankly, I don't think any of us really knows. Another essential is ministering to those in need. We just read about it. But how we do that is a non-essential. We can do that in many different ways. An essential is to meet with the body consistently for worship, to be in a church body, to be a part of a family that worships together, serves together, loves one another, cares for each other. But our music style, our dress, the liturgy of our worship or how we do worship, those are not essential. There are good Bible-believing churches that do that in a lot of different ways. What he's saying here, though, folks, is, hey, listen, when we sing together by loving, serving, and worshiping together in unity, it creates this beautiful music, even though we're singing slightly different melody or harmony lines. Folks, our worship here is important. It's not just important to get together and take attendance on Sunday so we can make sure everybody's still connected. That's not what we're here to do. We're here to come and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every single week. In fact, if you look very carefully at the book of Acts, when the Sabbath moved uh, from Saturday to a worship day on Sunday, the whole reason was, what, was because the apostles wanted to come together on Sunday and celebrate the resurrection every week because it happened on Sunday. They want to come and celebrate it. So when you come here, we want you to participate, serve, love one another, encourage one another, sing. Listen, nothing uh, is both more disturbing to me and more encouraging to me but to look out at you when, when we are worshiping, when we're singing music, when we're doing that part of the worship. Here's why. It's very disturbing because some of you who I know love Jesus. I know that you serve him. I know that you, you talk about him, you testify about him, and you stand there like you've been baptized in bad vinegar. <laughs> now listen, I know not everybody is as animated as me. I get that, okay? I've come to terms with that plenty of times already in my life. Okay, but listen, you can't, you can't open your mouth. You don't smile. You don't, you don't express anything when we're singing about the God of the universe sending his son to pay the penalty for your sins, there's a disconnect there, folks. You've got to think, you, I want you to think about. But nothing's more encouraging to me than, and I, by the way, I can't hear any of you, okay? Because I've got the earpieces in. I can't hear any of you. But, but I can see some of you who are singing out. It doesn't matter how good you are. You're singing out. And I see some of you whose face is expressing what we're singing about. Man, that is encouraging because that's telling me, man, your face doesn't usually do that without your heart engaged. God wants us, folks, to be participating in worship. He wants us to come and worship Christ, not musically, but with our lives in a real way, together as one body. Then Paul moves on and he says, which is really interesting that he says this right after this part. He says, accept others as Christ has accepted us. 
When we come to worship here every Sunday and be together and do all the things that we do, look what he says in verse 7. It says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Pretty simple, pretty simple. But it's pretty profound. Think about the way that Christ has welcomed us. Christ asked us to come to him just as we were. He didn't say, hey, fix yourself up, work out your issues, work out your problems, fix your relationships, then when you kind of got your act together, come and worship with me and all the other perfect people at church. That ain't how it goes down, folks. That is not how it goes down. Jesus didn't ask us to change anything except our mind. Just change your mind towards me. Put your faith in me, and I will accept everything about you. Now, I might begin to whittle off some of the rough edges. I might begin to change you and transform you to make you a better reflection of Jesus. But when it comes to welcoming us into the family of God, folks, there are no requirements except to put our faith and trust in him and say, here's here's my wrecked life, God. Here's my wrecked life. Can you do something with it? And Jesus challenges us. He says, listen, I want you to accept everybody who comes through those doors the same way I accepted you. And I gotta be really honest with you. I hate it when he does this. <laughs> you know, I, there's a lot of verses I really like until he says, uh, by the way, do it exactly how I've done it. Ugh, that just gets me every time. You know, welcome everybody. Okay, I can welcome everybody. Welcome everybody the same way I welcomed you. Ooh, that's at a whole nother level, right? It's a whole nother level. So if somebody comes through these doors who doesn't talk like us, doesn't look like us, doesn't smell like us, doesn't speak like us, doesn't think like us, they should be welcome here because Jesus welcomed us. We should offer the same to them. And God receives honor and glory when we do this. It it gives him the glory that he deserves I got in a theological discussion with somebody one time about the fact that we can't give God glory because he already has all the glory. Well, in the end, he will have all of the glory. But the reality is many humans take some of God's glory away because they steal it from him. If an athlete makes a touchdown and he says, man, look what I did. I'm awesome, aren't I? He's stealing away God's glory at that moment. He's taking credit for something apart from God. And the reality is when we love people and just welcome them, welcome them, the first time they come, the third time they come, the eighth time they come, the 56th time they come, the 325th time they come, we are doing exactly what Jesus wants us to. By the way, we have a team of people here in our church uh, we call first, uh, first Impressions Team. And they are actually in charge of giving a good first impression. They open the door outside. They, they stand at the Connection Center and help answer people's questions. They hand out bulletins. They should make you feel comfortable here in the sanctuary, all that kind of stuff. But let's just be really honest, folks. The moment you decided to make this your church and you planted your flag here, you were on the first impressions team. Whether you signed up for it or did the training or not, It is everybody's responsibility in this room who is a member of Fellowship of Grace to make every single person feel welcome when they come through those doors. Shame on us if we don't do our part 
Now, not, no one person can do it all, but all of us should make people feel welcome every single time they come. Then Paul says the Jews glorify God's faithfulness while the Gentiles glorify God's mercy. Look at verses 8 through 12. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. I don't know if a slide will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. Paul gives us reasons for both Jews and Gentiles to come together in the church and be able to worship together, be able to have this kind of spiritual unity together. He said, listen, if you're Jewish, if you come from that background and that heritage, you should glorify God because of his faithfulness to his promises. He has been promising you things for generations. And in Jesus Christ, he has fulfilled those promises. He has been incredibly faithful to you as a people. And so if you are from a Jewish background, you should be praising God today and glorifying him for his incredible faithfulness to his promise, his truthfulness, his desire to tell the truth and follow through every single time. But for most of us who aren't of Jewish background, the Gentiles should glorify God's mercy, glorify God for his mercy to receive us also. Listen, we are not an afterthought Paul quotes these four Old Testament passages uh, here. He, he quotes Deuteronomy 32.43, which is from the law. He quotes 2 Samuel 22.5, which is a quote from the history books of the Old Testament. He, he quotes Psalm 117.1, which are from the Psalms. And he quotes Isaiah 11.10 from the prophets. Uh, basically, the four big areas of the Old Testament, uh, God is showing that he has been, uh, it has been God's sovereign plan the whole time to draw the Jews and the Gentiles together to be his people in the church. Jesus saving the Gentiles was not a backup plan because plan number one failed, folks. It's clear from the Old Testament that God's plan all along was that Jesus would come in fulfillment to all of the promises to the Jews and they would reject him and the door would swing wide open for everyone else to come into the family of God through the church, through the New Testament church, through Jesus Christ. We are not an afterthought. The Jews should glorify God's faithfulness while we as Gentiles should glorify God for his mercy. He didn't have to let us in, folks. It's a privilege. It's, 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 man, when we sang that song earlier about being in awe of God, I just look in the mirror sometimes and go, man, God, why? Why would you love an idiot like me? Why would you, love, why would you just let your son die for somebody who is as messed up as I am? Who doesn't always act in a selfless way? Who doesn't always do what he knows is right? Who isn't always kind to his wife and his children and his grandchildren? Who isn't always, I mean, just go on and on and on. None of us are perfect, folks, but listen, we, we just should be in awe of God's mercy and grace. We, 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 
if we somehow become complacent about that, if we ever get over the fact that Jesus let us in, we're missing something. We are missing something, folks. Let's not get over that, okay? The last thing Paul mentions here in verse 13 is that faith brings about joy and peace which result in hope. Faith brings about joy and peace which result in hope. Look at verse 13. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So there's a little equation here. Basically, by believing, putting our faith and trust in Jesus, it results in both joy and peace, which when they are are strengthened by the Holy Spirit, they turn into hope. We should have joy if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, if we have given our life to him, if we have stepped over that line of faith and said, yes, I believe that putting my faith and trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross to save me is what it takes for my sins to be forgiven. I trust in that and that alone. When we make that decision, folks, that should start the process of joy. Joy about the forgiveness of our sins and God's participation in our lives. I, 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 sometimes in my mind I get this picture of a list of every sin I've committed in my entire life and just just pulling it up and the scroll just rolling down the aisle and it just keeps on going. And the joy I have knowing that one day I'll stand before God perfect because of the blood of Jesus. Not because of my perfection, but because of what Jesus has done for me. Folks, that brings about joy. And knowing that God is participating in my life, knowing that he's got it all under control, that brings about incredible joy that doesn't go away with circumstances. He also brings about peace, peace with him, peace with God, and peace within ourselves. If you struggle with having peace in your own life, folks, the greatest way to gain peace is to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Give your life to him. He'll bring about some peace to your life. And listen, when joy and peace are strengthened by the Holy Spirit, God working his work in our hearts and transforming us from the inside out, that turns into massive hope, great hope. Paul's point of writing to the churches in Rome was to increase, develop, and encourage their hope. He was saying, listen, guys, don't forget the gospel. Don't get so busy doing church and doing religious stuff that you forget the gospel that saved you. He knows there are trials coming for everyone, everyone. And he wants our faith to produce real things in our lives. Listen, there are only two people in this world. There's only two people, two kinds of people in this room. There are those people who are going through trials and those that are soon gonna be going through trials. That's it. (laughs) All right, welcome to the planet. But listen, folks, these are real things. These aren't just religious words. Having joy even though things are going out of control, having peace, even though it seems like everybody's turning their back on you, having hope in the future and in your eternity, because it's real. Folks, these are are real things that God wants to produce in our life when we understand and focus on the gospel. I want 
our church to be the kind of church that Paul's talking about here, the kind that everybody's singing in the choir. We're all working together to encourage one another, to love one another, to be real with each other, to, to, to be transformed by interacting with each other, but with him, to worship together and to row the same direction. There are still just so many people in Clay and Platt counties that don't know Jesus. And they're, they're looking for something to bring some joy and some peace and some hope in their lives. They just don't know what they're looking for. Let's work together, folks, to be that kind of church. Let's lock arms and be the kind of church that is gonna bring about this wonderful choir of people who are all doing their own kind of ministry thing. They're all different. We have great diversity individually, but when we come together, there's one voice, singing, serving, loving, and praising God and bringing him honor and glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for how you teach us. We thank you for your spirit in us. God, help us as individuals to just give our lives to you completely. Help us to experience this joy and this peace that come with real faith. And then, Father, help that turn into great hope, hope for uh, just the future, hope for our lives, hope that you're going to continue to be faithful to us, the understanding that hope is not just a, a flippant thought, but it's understanding that you have assured us of things, and we can count on those things because you've been faithful in the past. Father, help us not only do that as individuals, but help this church to be the kind of church that is a lighthouse to this community. Help us to truly minister to those in need. If we are truly strong, if we are truly mature, help us to minister to those who are not, not to look down on them, not to consider ourselves better. But the greatest characteristic, grow it in us, God, to serve those who are less fortunate and in need of help. God uses church in a great way to lead people to Jesus uh, and to, to just connect them to your plan for their lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.